Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell, and today it's my privilege to have as my guest, Dr. Michaela O'Donnell. She's the Executive Director of Fuller Seminary's Dupree Center for Leadership. She's an entrepreneur, a teacher, and a sought-after speaker and consultant who regularly presents on topics of vocation, career, and leadership to a variety of communities. You're going to love this conversation. We take a deep dive into entrepreneurship, into creativity, and into the mindsets that all of us can develop that will enhance our ability to live out our callings and our vocation. This is an episode that's helpful for you, whether you are an entrepreneur yourself, a pastor, or a person who's looking to live out their calling as a Christian in the workplace. Let's jump into this conversation. Welcome to the Deep Dive podcast, Michaela. Thanks for having me, Brian. And just to kind of get right into the interview, uh, can you share some of your key moments in your spiritual journey that's led you to work, to your work as an entrepreneur and a teacher and a consultant and now an author of uh, uh, your book, Make Work Matter? Yeah, talk about starting starting right at the at the heart of it. I like that. Um, yeah, you know, when, when you talk about what are key moments in my spiritual journey, um, a couple of things come to mind. One, just my family of origin, right? So I was raised by Irish Catholic parents in the Midwest in Nebraska. Big families. We've got like literally my both my parents come from families of nine, and. There, there's just a, a kind of work ethic that's interlaced with what it means to be a person and what it means to be a person of faith. And um, all that stuff wasn't talked about or parsed out or pulled out um, growing up. But those were my those are my models, my parents, my aunts and uncles. If you look at the two things that people in my family do most for work, it's teach and start businesses. So uh, I'm, those, those are pretty formative for me. And so I think about, you know, just you talk about moments. I think about conversations around the dinner table. I think about listening to my uncle ask my mom, like, how's business? How's, how's it going? And have you worked on this and this? And just those family holiday uh, conversations uh, really come forth to me and, I don't know that those are conversations where anyone said to each other, like, okay, where, where's God in that? Right. But it was so implied. It was like, how are you doing? It was the, it was the on the way kind of along the way check-in stuff. So that's the first one. And the second one in terms of my own spiritual journey, when my husband and I, we both went to seminary, we graduated. This is a story that's in the book. And we, and it was in the middle of the kind of 08 housing crash recession. Mm -hmm. And our way to, to get ourselves out of that was actually to start our own business, probably linked to many of those vignettes that I just alluded to in my own family upbringing. And that was full of so much risk and so much unknown and so much, so many questions, a lot of vulnerability, certain moments where I felt like dumb and unsure other times where I felt so excited only to have that, have that sort of come back and double back on it and end up in disappointment. And so there was the first year of that, starting the business, a business called Long Winter Media, was one of the most spiritually formative parts of my life and work and has set the foundation 
along with my upbringing and education and et cetera, et cetera, to be a person who cares about work, to be a person who cares about talking to people about their work, helping people think deeply about meaning and issues that matter in terms of how they spend their time nearly every day. So when you ask about moments in my spiritual journey, because I'm a person who talks about work, I go to some of the work moments, the first, mm -hmm. the pictures of family, and then this story of my husband and I starting our own company. And both of those have been deeply formative in how I move through the world as an entrepreneur, consultant, teacher, mother, friend, et cetera. I think it's in the same part of the book where you were talking about how you and your husband start came out of seminary and then started this business and you used the phrase that I loved it it was uh, or it's educated but unprepared yeah. and you know you hear all the stories about people that have all these this debt coming out of um, uh, of college and, and such so what does that mean in why is that an issue today that we have so many people at least this seem to be educated but unprepared to be able to find a, a work that they love or to find something in the related to the degree that they they took at, a, at some college so what what what, uh, what what do you have to say about that yeah that's a good question brian i mean there's a there's a ton that goes into this so i'll call out just a couple of things one you know i'm a teacher I come from families of teachers i love teachers uh, i think they're like some of the best humans. So none of this is, it's the fault of teachers, right? And it's not, not even the fault of educational systems. It's the reality that educational systems inherently move slow and mm -hmm. are actually built and designed to have several, several vetting processes in any given change that they might make. Think about the university all the way down to elementary. And that comes in stark contrast to the pace of the world today. Like the world is just moving so fast and people have to make, you know, the change is just pervasive and, you know, it's all over the place. I don't even, I don't even know how to say how, how all over the place it is, but those two things come in contrast, right? So then you've got people who have been well-prepared and taught things and, and, and forecasted out and then deposited into a world that, that feels like a tornado instead. It's like, whoa, what do I do with that? How do I get my bearings? And sometimes it's like, actually, we're not going to get our bearings. We're going to learn to be people who know how to ride and center ourselves and thrive to use a couple of words from you and from our good, our shared friend, Pam King amidst all of that chaos. Right. So that's, that's one thing. Um, the other thing I would say is that as a culture and society, we have decided that people are going to know what they want to do when they grow up, when they're like 22 years old and 23 years old and developmentally speaking, people don't know all that there is to know about themselves at that point. And that in fact, much of how we end up discerning what kind of work is a good fit for us to do and how might God be calling us in the midst of that is by trying out different things and exploring. And so again, that comes into contrast. So then we've got people would put them out at 22 or 23. And instead of saying, spend the next six years and take, do four different jobs and see what, see what you see, what you're good at and let, or let one job lead to the next. We've built our system on a way that requires a lot of training and a lot of preparation and then sort of spits people out, whether it's a four-year degree, a two-year degree, or a 12-year process, 
And there's, we get more of that educated, but unprepared because part of making our way through the world of work is understanding ourselves and how we fit into it. And we're just starting, most of us are just starting to really do that process right at the same time that we're supposed to pick, you know, what we want to be when we grow up. And I didn't give you this question. I just curious how you would answer. You, you say, you don't, I mean, I agree. We, we don't necessarily want to critique uh, teachers or even, I mean, there are things about the system we could probably nitpick about, but one of the elements ends up being that essentially when you go through any kind of curriculum, you're kind of told what you have to take, even if there's electives, right? So if you were going to add something, so we're not, not going to take anything away. We're not going to blow the whole thing up. If you're going to add a course, whether it's at high school or college that could potentially create help a, a student to be able to think, I don't want to say outside the box, that's a cliche, but that's what I'm essentially getting at in a way that would allow them to say, after following rules for 16 years, that now I need to think, oh, I might have to work six jobs in the next six years to figure out what I want. That seems like a massive shift. So how, how would you help somebody to get to that point? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know that I would add on a new class, but instead I might add an element to most classes that we're teaching. I'm thinking particularly about college and I teach at the graduate school level. So that biases my thinking here. In fact, I, I got a class tomorrow and it's our first class. And, you know, I, in the beginning, it's like, these are the goals, right? You got to have learning outcomes. You got to be teaching towards something. I give it to people. And then I, and then I have a new slide and the slide is like, but like, why are you here? Like, mm -hmm. what are you here to do? And what do you actually want to get out of this class? Why don't you go ahead and set some goals for this class? And then at the end, we can measure you against the goals I've set for you as a professor and a teacher, or we can measure you against the goals you've set for yourself. And there's a transfer of ownership there that is not, doesn't happen all in that moment, but it represents a, a transfer of ownership. Like I think when we tell people what they have to know, that's a power dynamic that I'm less comfortable with in terms of how people actually have to move and how they might contribute in the world. Whereas we say, okay, these are your goals. We're still in a sandbox here. We're still in a lane. This is still a class called this. So given what I've just said and what we're doing here, what might you want to do next? And then actually like my job is to support those goals and to figure out how we can support those together. Now, what I've just described is not possible in every single class, but versions of it are. I, I've got a kindergartner. I think about, you know, what, what, it, where are her interests? What does she want to do? What, and, and letting her some of explore some of those and weave the concepts that, you know, we think are building blocks for learning into those. So there's a transfer of ownership. Um, I guess you could put that in one class, but it's more, it's like a posture I'd love to see more pervasive across different kinds of courses for college and even graduate level students, even the things that are really technical. I think that that's a, a healthy goal. No, that's good. I think um, I, I do like that. I know even I used to, be able, used to be able to negotiate for certain grades and you do certain different things. And that's not exactly what you just said, but I could imagine how that, that puts pressure on the teacher, but it also gives the students. So I actually like that a lot. I'm going to think about that even from, I think, my own classes here, how I might do that. So we talk about change and obviously a lot of your book focuses on kind of mindset stuff. It has coaching tools. Again, everybody's listening, make work matter, your guide to meaningful work in a changing world. Uh, 
what are your some of your favorite metaphors or strategies for helping you know your readers or even your students to get new ways of thinking about change so they can you know navigate and stay on some path and not be overwhelmed by you know all the things that you even suggested when you first started talking about all the changes in our world yeah that's that's a good question i think metaphors are helpful right they help us imagine and sort of feel and contextualize whatever it is we're trying to go after, especially in a coaching or a learning or starting environment. Like I know, Brian, um, the good work that you're doing is, is involved in. A couple of metaphors come to mind. One, uh, when we think about the, the world of work as it used to be, Reid Hoffman, actually the founder of LinkedIn, describes the world of work in its sort of former sense as an escalator economy, right? Mm -hmm. People would get on and you sort of predictably move up and some people might, you might get off, right? If you're going to tend to your family or maybe switch escalators into a different job, but by and large, you could go and ascend up to the top and exit at some point. Um, now, the dirty little secret is that this escalator worked really well for some people and not as well for other people, but this is kind of the main operative labor force metaphor. Uh, he would say that today the escalator is jammed at every level. Like people young cannot get on, people old, older don't have the money to get off, and things are like being swiped out from underneath us. And so the we're not in an escalator economy anymore. And so it's been helpful for me in light of all the changes to think about things as more of a set of whitewater rapids. I I am not an expert at Whitewater Rapids, though I've gone on my fair share of trips and I've gone over my fair share of, of the, the big class four uh, whitewater situations. So I have a healthy fear of the rapids, if you will. I have, I have enough experience to know that they are serious business. And the goal of a, any kayaker or a group of people traveling down together is to be able to harness the momentum of those rapids toward their ultimate destination which requires at certain moments, sort of nuanced and precise paddle movements. Other times it requires uh, synergy and collective motion in a group. Um, other times it requires, uh, you know, kind of skills of how to get back in the boat, right? Um, I tell this story in the, in the book actually, but I was uh, going on, I was on one of these trips and we were on the Okoe River, which is nearby the college town I was in. And it was the same one that was used for the 96 Olympics. And so it was like serious rapids. And I was like kind of alarmed listening to the safety speech, serious, <laughs> really paying attention. And right before we, right as we got started, before we went over the first rapid, which was the biggest rapid, this guy just falls out of, of the boat. At that time, I'm 20, he's 50, right? And so, and he's, he's literally next to me and he's about to go into this giant rapid which is known for recirculating people, which means they get trapped in the water and really bad stuff can happen. And I like threw my paddle out to him and I like, you know, ushered him over. And then I, my friend who was the guide, I mean, she was very petite, probably weighed literally 110 pounds. She like lifts him in with one arm. So I'm like, well, that was <laughs> quite the moment. And the reality is that we're going to find ourselves in some of those moments and we have to have the safety skills but to live and work and be at that level all the time would be unsustainable, right? And so we, we need these movements for in-between. How do we paddle at a rate where we can keep moving without expending all of our energy? How can we you know, learn from those who have traveled down the rapids before, 
without going off course. And so when I think about change, I think about whitewater rapids and we're in, and most people are in a whitewater rapid economy over and above an escalator economy these days. I'll just add one more analogy or metaphor. There's still a lot of agency in the, in, in the analogy I just gave, right? You've mm-hmm. got a boat, you got a paddle, you're traveling down, um, hitting, you know, sort of traversing these changes. There are many moments in the world, right? We're just, we're like, who knows where we are in the COVID-19 pandemic year three, you know, it's playing out very different geographically, but there are some moments both globally and also individually that just feel like they're earthquake moments in terms of change. Like the ground has shifted beneath us. And in those moments, we do what we do in earthquakes, which is like, take cover and like wait until it's safe and slow down and learn to grieve our way out and pick up the pieces bit by bit. And so there's different types of change. And I I wouldn't want to like, it's all, and there's more metaphors that we could go into, but those are two that help me uh, start to frame some of the different things that we're experiencing. No, I actually love that metaphor. I think it's really helpful. And people, I mean, again, feel like they've been in the rapids. And I like, I mean, I can just imagine we can go on there and say, like, what's the equipment? How do you get all that stuff? But you use the word entrepreneur as a way, like you can learn things, have this entrepreneurial mindset. And that resonated with me because uh, I like, I don't mind risk. And I've learned to kind of love that. And I'm a went from a shy person to start my own business. And so I've, I've had to grow a lot to be able to mm. do what I've ended up doing over the years. Um, and I'm grateful for that, but it wasn't easy. But when you're a lot of people who are entrepreneur, it gets a bad name and a bad rap sometimes in the culture today, because it ends up to being selfish or stepping on other people or all the things that sometimes get stuck there, but use it in a positive way. Mm-hmm. So whether a person likes the word entrepreneur or are intimidated or even offended by it, what can a non-entrepreneur learn from an entrepreneur? Or let's put it this way, a person who thinks they aren't an entrepreneur, what could we learn from the way you like to use entrepreneur about calling and work that can help them navigate whitewater rapids, let's say? Yeah, thank you. Well, first of all, I love that you started something. I think, I really do think that when people of faith are adding things, ventures, projects, relationships, otherwise of value to the world in pursuit of, of God and, you know, redemption, that's a really sweet thing. And it's not easy as you've just alluded to. So I'm really grateful for the work that you do and for your bravery in, in starting something. Yeah. The word entrepreneur is one of those words people like, they have a lot, people have lots of feelings about it, which is interesting. Kind of like leader or creative. Those are two more that I get a lot of like, like we're touching on spots now. Um, I, I don't, I, I'm not, I'm not on a one woman quest to make everybody a a fan of the word entrepreneur. What I am on a one woman quest to do is to extract some of the attributes and help people realize that a lot more of us than just the fancy few have this woven into our DNA. And as people of faith, this is absolutely a way that we ought to be thinking about walking through the world. So I did some research that led to this and led to this book and and then started doing even just informal research after the fact, not after I read the book, but after I did the more formal research. And I would ask people a set of questions. Um, you know, how have you learned to define success? How have you learned to define failure? What practices have moved you towards success? What practices have helped you deal with failure? And one of the surprises to me early on 
was that common to people who had navigated change and who had things that were presumably or objectively by a set of characteristics doing well enough in seasons of where everybody, the world felt chaotic. The number one thing they had in common was that they practiced empathy mm. uh, and not just empathy in sort of a formal, let's set up a listening project and like talk to everybody about things, but a kind of empathy along the way. Right. Um, now this takes me what I could tell stories about, about particular entrepreneurs, but where it takes me in the Bible is the story of the good Samaritan. Right. So this is, I love the story Christianity 101, be a good neighbor, you know, love God with all your heart and, and love yourself and, um, be a good neighbor. That's the basic principle of, of Jesus's response of how might we inherit eternal life. And we know the story of the good Samaritan. We know that the first two people pass by the person in need. And then we know the, the Samaritan who is presumably in route from point A to point B. He's got him a, he's going somewhere. He's on this road that people travel. He's got all this supplies. He's got his donkey. And yet he moves. He is moved by empathy toward compassion to partner himself up with the person in need for the rest of this journey. And so much so that he contributes ongoing resources toward his well-being. That empathy then sort of moves its way into imagination. Imagination moves its way into risk, right? Like, oh, what if I shared my, what if I helped this guy? Risk. Oh, what if I put him on my donkey and walk beside him? Probably slowing down the journey quite a bit. And now you've got a vulnerable person that you're with making you more vulnerable. And oh, by the way, I'm going to tell this innkeeper, like, I'm, I'm going to pay this bill when I'm done. Like, you're going to end up an open-ended financial agreement with somebody you don't know. Talk about risk and possibility of being exploited, right? And yet he does it anyway. And so this move from empathy to imagination to risk was a move that was common and central to the people that I, the entrepreneurs that I talk with. And when I think about that kind of movement, I'm like, that's a way of being. That's yeah. a way of being a Christian. That's a way of demonstrating faith in Jesus. And we can call it the entrepreneurial way, which I do, or we can call it being human. We can call it being compassionate. We can call, but like the world is in desperate need of more people who believe they have the resources within them to help solve problems in their midst and join hands with neighbors and take risks that could or could not work out for the sake of each other. So that is why I am on a one woman quest to distill the practices and sort of attributes, if you will, of what it means to be an entrepreneur and invite a much wider group than people who will ever, ever start formal businesses into it. I, I absolutely love that answer. That was so good. Uh, and you brought faith into it, used the good Samaritan. Like, so where else do you see, and again, this is, a, we teach at the seminaries, so this is completely unfair questions, but how do you integrate um, faith, um, trust in God with entrepreneurship and even being more creative? Yeah, unfair question, right? Because this is like what we spend our time doing, but also a good question for us yeah, since we yeah. spend our time doing it. Um, again, we mentioned words that people decide if they're in or out, right? Entrepreneur, I'm in and out. Creative is one of those words too. I have, uh, I'm thinking of my friend Molly and the stories in the book too. Molly is actually, she uh, she is from Kentucky. So home state of uh, Asbury, um, or at least part of your part of your campuses and work. And she started a multinational fitness company, like just dozens of employees, 
objectively fi financially successful, really doing good stuff, like helping women have positive body image, just things that matter. Mm -hmm. And her and I were catching up. Um, we were catching up at a mutual friends kind of, uh, graduation party. And I said to her, like, you know, she said to me, actually, this was, uh, years into when my husband and I had started long winter media. She said, Oh, I just, I love that creative work that you're doing. I'm just, I'm not really a creative person. And I was floored. I'm like, this person has just created jobs, created, um, you know, fitness programs, created um, new relationships, created branding, created impact, created revenue streams, created, created, created. But because that word so often gets reserved for the artists among us, she didn't see herself as creative. And in order for this to like for it's kind of house it in your question of like how do we trust god like where is god at in that two things one like this is i i think this is the first calling to humans right to work in creative ways this is genesis 1 26 through 28 like fill the earth and multiply it after we've been made in the image of god as a way to uh live out our service and our and respond to god's calling for us and that, that creativity, I don't think that creativity is something that we get when we're all grown up. I mean, I've seen it in my, I see that, I see the muscles of creativity woven into my children who are six and three. I saw it when they were one and, you know, babies and right from the start, like that's in our DNA. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, like, why don't so many more of us see ourselves as creative? And is there a trust that is not there, God, ourselves, and otherwise? I think by and large, the, we, we live in a culture that's taught us to be self-conscious, that's taught us that we go in certain boxes. And recovery in that sense of freedom, that, that liberating sense of making, I think is, is actually critical to what it means to be a faithful Christian walking through the world. And we can trust that that is like that's in our first story about God. It goes all the way back to the beginning. So we don't have to look hard or far to find God's stamp of approval on us being creative. Yeah, and if you read uh, Michaela's book, uh, Make Work Matter, she has uh, excellent, I mean, excellent um, stories all the way through there. And then at the end of each chapter, there's actually a guide that you sort of get coached as though she were with you on moving through some of the things that she's even talking about now. But just to give a, some kind of teasers and some tips, what would be some mindset shifts or even habits that uh, we could cultivate in our own lives that would help people to be able to navigate more deeply into their calling and their career? Again, I know that's a big question, but what would be a couple of habits that a person might embrace to begin to move towards being more entrepreneurial, understanding how creative they actually are and reach the, maybe a higher level of, of their potential? Yeah, thank you. So I'm a practical theologian. And what that means is that practical theologians, we start with experience mm -hmm. and we say, okay, well, what's going on in the world, right? What's happening? What's going on in my world? What's going on in your world? Why is this happening? What's going on? Why is this happening? And then, then the third thing we do is like, well, what does our faith say about that? What does the Bible say about that? What do other Christians throughout the ages, how have what's happened to them speak to this? And then finally, like, what might we do in light of it? And 
all of that at its core is the move between action and reflection. It's just Mm -hmm. action, reflection, action, reflection, being and doing, being and doing. So strengthening the muscles of being entrepreneurial, strengthening the muscles for navigating change, strengthening the muscles to be people who can be at peace and connected regardless of what's going on around us. For me, it all comes back to that rhythm of action and reflection. So in the book, what you'll notice and in my work with people, right? So I, just like you, Brian, I coach people and what I'm often coaching them to do is to sort of like descend within themselves and so that they can kind of ascend back out with new tools. And every time we go in, we go in a little bit deeper. I think about like a scuba diver, right? It's like, we go like a layer deeper and a layer deeper and a layer deeper. And that is because it is my bias that the external work that we seek to do is like intimately connected to the internal work that we're willing to do with God, with others. So every practice, every exercise, every set of questions that are in the book are all to that aim. I'll share um, one in particular that I think is helpful in this season and is resonated with people pretty strongly. It's called let water off your boat. And I don't know if you read this one, or if you looked at it, but if not, I'll, I'll explain it. Um, when I was, when we had our second child, my, my son is three, when he was about six weeks old, one of my very best friends was like, just going through it. Life was too much. And she was overwhelmed and she ended up going through a divorce and she needed to come and live with us right when my son was in the, those newborn, newborn, newborn stages. And so she's my best friend. So of course I said, come live with us. And I would do the, do the mothering stuff and be feeding and like trying to get him to nap and just trying to drink my cold coffee and do all that stuff during the day. And then at night she would need to talk like, and we would just need to talk about stuff. And several days into this arrangement, it was just too much. I was overwhelmed. I was just like, I can't do all of this work. I can't do, I can't have all these conversations. I can't do any of it. And so I called my mom who is, you know, she's a mental health therapist. So that certainly also you'll notice just that formation as part of the way I think as well. Um, I'm not a mental health therapist, obviously, but that's made an impression on me. And she said to me, Michaela, you're like a little boat that's taking on water. And unless you intentionally let water off your boat, you are going to sink. And so I I was like, I don't know how to do that. And she's like, think about it. She's like, and she knows me. So she's like, you love to, you love to cook. You love to run. You love to dance all these things. Right. And so I'm like these things I could do in 10 minutes, right. Small versions of them. But what I realized and what has been key is that when people are navigating change. And in particular, if they're feeling their own transition, whether they're starting something, ending something, birthing something, handing it over, et cetera, et cetera, they are inevitably taking on water. And so the answer in the midst of change cannot just be, we've got to do more and muscle up and buck up and all of that. It's like, if we're going to be people whose boats can go down the whitewater rapids, we are going to assume that we're also going to take on some water and we need intentional strategies for letting that water off the boat, which is a movement of that doing and being and that action and reflection. So there's, there's one that's been honestly pretty powerful for, for different people that I've engaged with. 
No, that's so good. And I mean, just from the spiritual formation world, they always talk about the via positiva and the via negativa. And it's both um, things you add and things you take off and or sports, you got offense and you have defense. And I, I, I love actually the metaphor that you in that story that you told, I think it's going to resonate with a lot of, uh, of folks. Now, to the kind of the hard question, like, when I read your book, I was thinking about some of the business owners that I'm coaching right now. And and they're good people. I mean, you'd want to work for them. I mean, I would want to work for them if I was looking for a job, but they right now that they're, they would love to have somebody that read your book actually apply. What, what's your advice from the owner side, you know, um, mm-hmm. so that they could be attractive to the types of people who might go for you through your book and say, wow, I, I have, I understand my calling. I've taken the water off. I got water off my boat. I filled myself up. I'm ready for a challenge. So what can employers do today to attract the kind of people that, you know, you're trying to shape through your work? That's that's the million dollar question, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So you got to solve it today. Certainly (laughs) uh, a huge, huge issue right now. Great resignation, attrition rates, great reassessment, people moving from one industry to the next. I think, I think it falls in a couple of categories here from the perspective of a business owner. One is there's just some of the basic stuff that you've got to have in check, right? Like, are you paying people a rate that is a livable wage? Are you like taking into consideration their whole livelihood? And if the answer to those questions is I can't pay people a livable wage because I can't, you know, collect those kind of fees from X, Y, and Z, then you've got business model issues and right. like, you've just got to get into those. So you got to, you got to attack some of those things um, beyond, beyond those, which that's not a short list. And there's certain industries I think that are going to completely reorganize. You're thinking about manufacturing, you're thinking about um, restaurant industry, hospitality, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not a short list. So there's this whole level of technical stuff, but then there's this in, in which I think the literature and one of my favorite uh, scholars would link those to like extrinsic motivations. What are the things that you can put on paper that externally motivate people? But then there's this whole category of intrinsic motivation and uh, the things inside of a person. And these are the things that retain people the, primarily. These are the things that um, attract people. And I, I want to like pivot to the side in order to come back here. So um, one of my favorite sort of commentators, his name is Derek Thompson. He writes on basically America's relationship to work and he'll, he's published in the New York times and Atlantic and things like that. And one of the points that he makes is that we are currently in an age of workism where we actually, as a culture kind of worship work and expect it to pay off for us in certain ways one of those ways being that that's where we, as a culture now, I'm not talking about individuals yet, hope and perceive and expect kind of self-actualization and identity formation to really happen, right? And it's the question people ask, when you, you, what, do you, what do you do, right? And you're defined by what it is you do for work. What that means is that many, many people are on a quest to discover themselves through work. That is a that is probably ultimately limited, right? There's there's a, as as people of faith and as people of well being, we would want to broaden that quest. But what it means is that if you're a place where people can get to know themselves, where they can 
grow. And I mean, professionally here, I don't mean like about their personal intimate stuff, but get to know they're good at things, get to know what kind of things they like. That is, um, it starts to set you apart when you're, when you're um, trying to attract employees. I wouldn't expect that you're going to be attracting employees for five to 10 years. It would be a huge win if you can develop a method that attracts all-star employees for two to three years, launches them onto their next thing. And now you've got a rubric and rhythm where you're inviting the next crop in. And so if you're, everybody wants to launch again, because work is is attached to our identity. We all want it to be bigger and better and to keep going and to keep discovering. And if you can position the jobs that you have at, you know, whether you're an insurance broker or a bank manager or working at a restaurant as a place where people are going to do that kind of work that's setting them up for their long-term sense of meaning. And let's use the word now calling, which is not at all static and not at all, you know, um, one thing that starts to set you apart. So you got to have all the technical stuff in place, the money, the like, you know, hours, the flexibility, some of the stuff's getting even more demanding because of COVID people just expect and want to work from home now. And I would ask yourself, like, does that actually save you some overhead money? Like, you know, can you actually do that? So beyond that stuff, what does it look like to de- to be an organization and a company that de- truly develops people? And I'm telling you, Brian, people want to work at those kind of companies because they want to be developed. They want to grow. So will, is that a quick fix? No. Is there some investment that I just described that would have to happen? Yes. But if you're talking about long-term sustainability and not only attraction, but retention, right. And, and being able to move people up, that's where I'd start. Really good. Thank you very much. And I appreciate your time. So I always want to end with a couple of uh, shorter answer questions. Or they, you know, they can be as long as you want to make them, but these aren't meant to be super long uh, pieces. I like to ask all my guests these. Um, it's like, what's next for you? You wrote a great book and you just told me this is your first book, Make Work Matter. Uh, is there a next book already? Is there, and you're pretty young, so I don't know if there's a book you're afraid to write yet. I like to ask people, the, what's the book you're afraid to write? But what, what would be next for you as an author? That's a great question. Yeah, I've I've got another book in mind. It actually does scare me a little bit, which oh, is good. interesting. When I read your question, I was like, "Ooh, that's such a good question." Um, it's it's too early for me to even describe it. But what I will say is, it's the result of the material that's in here and in, in Make Work Matter became the basis for a program that we run at the Dupree Center. Two hundred and fifty people have now gone through that program. And I have just learned so much from yeah. them, Brian. And it's it's just been, you know how that happens. And so some of the seedlings for the next one are coming out of out of some of that work. Cool, cool. Yeah, I like that fear question because it's like that sometimes like I promise myself I'm in my 50s now, but it's like I'm never writing another word that doesn't slightly scare me if I if I can help mm. it. So I'm trying just to go as uh, deep as uh, as possible. So it's it's mm. that's, that's one of my favorite questions to see what people will say. Well, just personally, and you don't have to be any more transparent than you want to be on this, but like, do you have like rhythms? Like we talked, you talked about, you know, even on your rapids question or taking water off that implies you have certain practices and spiritual bumpers, if you will. So like what, what keeps you grounded and empowered for your own work? 
Yeah. So one would be gratitude. I'm an Enneagram seven and it can just be, I can just move fast and go and collect and be gratuitous and be gluttonous and like all the things I do and the practice of gratitude. um, I I do this nearly every day. And especially when I'm disappointed with myself or frustrated at somebody, like I stop and I'm like three things I'm grateful for. And it is just, it is like a, like an alignment. It's like going to a chiropractor. Um, so gratitude, it helps me slow down. It helps me center. It uh, just helps me be in tune, mm-hmm. um, in the same vein, silence, right? So I'm a seven, I've got two small kids. I've got a big job. My husband runs a company. Like there's a lot of noise in my life. And, um, almost every day I work for, this is, you know, what you see in the background here, uh, for those of you who are watching and not listening is my home office almost every day. Like, um, I, I walk around my neighborhood and just like do my best to just be with God. Sometimes I might ask a question. Sometimes I might be unwinding, but it's a moment where I'm not talking out loud. I'm not using my voice and nobody else is talking at me and nobody else is asking me to make decisions and silence. And that is, it's just, so I'm describing now, um, two practices and the third one falls in line that are just stabilizing for me. Mm -hmm. If I'm a pendulum swing, I don't want to be swinging. I want to be like, you know, you know, kind of dialed in the third one is rest. It's absolutely rest. It's hard to get as a, a parent of two young children. It's hard to get. I mean, when you're parenting and working sometimes simultaneously in the age of, you know, COVID, et cetera, but pockets of rest um, are, are really, really important for me. Um, and I try to power down on Friday, you know, after, and I try not to power back on until Monday. And I know I know it's a privilege. That schedule is a privilege and it hasn't always been that way, but because of how noisy the rest of life is, it's pretty necessary for me to be able to stay steady as well. Amen. I loved, uh, loved all, the whole, all those answers and should have prefaced the next question with outside the Bible, um, but you can still add that if you want to something to say that, but what, what would be, and again, this is the hard for anybody that's uh, that gets as well educated as you are, but if you're just going to say two or three books that have really personally shaped you spiritually, um, what, what would some of those titles be and the authors that have really helped you personally? I love books and ideas and people that make really complicated things clear. That's just, I mean, that's just a gift and I love it. Uh, So on that, Ruth Haley Barton, I love her work. Strengthening the soul of your leadership is a game changer. The the practicing the art of paying attention has been a game changer for me. Um, Creativity Inc., right? Ed Catmill, the genius that is Ed Catmill and started um, Pixar, wrote like leadership and organization lessons in a book. Uh, Again, just taking something complex and making it clear. And then um, Radical Kender um, by Kim Scott. Uh, the message is as simple as the title is, which is like, tell the truth, invest in people and tell the truth and be kind and clear. And um, that's, that's, that sometimes takes a lot of risk, right? And a lot of investment. And that might just be the season I'm in, right? I'm in a in the last year, I transitioned to a new leadership role and that's requiring some different muscles, but that book has been very spiritually formative, even though she's not writing from a faith perspective at all. Oh, thank you. I actually, I've never, I've actually never heard of that book. So I'm gonna have to check that mm-hmm. one out myself there. It's good. Um, and then the, the last question, where can listeners who want to find out more about you find your work? Where can they get a copy of uh, make work matter? 
Yeah. I mean, I'm available on all the places, Instagram, LinkedIn, et cetera. Um, you can also just Google Depree Center, D-E-P-R-E-E, -E, stuff to the book, programs we're doing at Depree Center. Really that houses um, all of my work and the work of uh, a lot of my colleagues too, which is really good as well. Do you have a website that, that just if that you personally have for yourself? Yeah. MichaelaO'Donnell.com. Okay, cool. Okay. And I'll put all those things in the show notes. And uh, Michaela, just thank you for what you do, how you've answered God's call in your life. And I really appreciate you taking the time to share with uh, me and everybody that's listening here all the way to the end today. It's been really good. Brian, thanks for the really hospitable and generous questions. This was a treat. Well, you're welcome. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this uh, week's episode of the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. Until next time, live by faith, be known by love, and be a voice of hope in the world. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. If you found this episode helpful, would you please share it with friends through your social media networks, as well as leaving a review to help other people find it? If you're interested in any of the resources mentioned, please check out the show notes. And let me again remind you, if you're interested in contemplative practices, my latest book, Centering Prayer, Sitting Quietly in God's Presence, Can Change Your Life, is now available in paperback or on Kindle. Recommend ordering it off of Amazon. If you want to do a large order, I would reach out directly to Paraclete Press. Ask for Sister Estelle, and you can get some deep discounts if you're interested in buying Say any quantity over of at least three or more copies, you can get good discounts directly from Paraclete. Thank you so much for the privilege of serving you, and we'll see you next time.